Welcome to the Elmer EMC podcast. We want to support you on your journey with God. So here's this week's teaching. I have no idea who Rab Jayot is. Does anybody know who Rab Jayot is? I haven't the foggiest, maybe a cartoon character or whatever, but uh, what he has to say here, um, if he said it, and who knows because it's off the internet that I got this, but but uh, the greatest battles are fought with invisible enemies. What do you think of that? That's, that sounds like it's got at least um, some truth to it. Uh, like uh, Captain Kirk, I can't see it, but it's out there. What's out there, Scotty? There, Captain, the Klingons, who just happen to be able to turn on their cloaking device and become, well, invisible, but not undetectable. Now, of course, that's science fiction. And by the way, um, I'm happy to know that that's the first Star Trek illustration I've used in about eight or nine or ten years. So uh, putting that now in the vault, um, my Scotty il- accent needs work. But, but that, that might be sci-fi. But we've faced invisible enemies. Like 20 years ago yesterday was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Do you remember where you were on 9-11? I was in a chiropractor's office getting some treatment, and he says to me, and it was about 8.30 or, no, it was probably about 9 o'clock by then, he said, Did, have you heard what's going on in New York? And I said, no, what? Oh, you haven't heard. Um, don't know quite what's going on yet, but it seems like a plane has hit one of the trade towers. Oh, my goodness. I got home, turned on the TV, to see the World Trade Tower. I said to Beth, I thought there were two. There were. And as I watched, it was only a few minutes, and that second one, before my eyes, in living, disgusting, gut-wrenching color, came crashing down. And I felt physically sick, as did so many. That was basically a visible enemy that became kind of invisible as the planes were hijacked. And uh, after having left Boston Airport, the transponders were turned off and they basically went dark until they reappeared um, approaching the sides of those towers in uh, what we um, not celebrated yesterday, but uh, but a a thing that was remembered. Um, We've been facing an invisible enemy uh, now for... uh, a year and a half, and uh, although some will still not acknowledge its existence, or if they do, they'll say it's not a very big deal, and all sorts of other things, uh, but uh, it's invisible, all right, but I can tell you quite detectable, and uh, from lived experience, potentially deadly. That's my opinion, backed up by evidence that I trust, as well as the ever-evolving data. The the, the fact is, there are invisible, uh, such things as invisible yet yet detectable enemies. Now, now what about the devil? The Satan, the adversary, the, the accuser. What about that guy? Is he real? I mean, invisible, right? Um, C.S. Lewis wrote, so many years ago that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. By the way, am I speaking 
clearly enough through this uh, mask because I'll slow down if you do some kind of hand motion. Um, we're good. Um, part of the guidelines that are currently in place. Two equal and opposite errors. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased in both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. He also uh, would say elsewhere that there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Well, is, is Lewis right? What do you think? Have you experienced or detected this invisible enemy in your life in recent times, in your workplace, in the world where the Afghanistans and Hades and, and so many other tragic things going on, in politics, in business, in your family? Have you been able to detect the presence and operation of one who operates in the darkness. John of Revelation certainly would say that Lewis was right. And uh, he, he certainly thought so. Well, of course, had, you might ask, had John ever seen the devil? Well, not to my knowledge, but he'd certainly in his life detected the presence of this one. Think back to the upper room when Satan filled the heart of Judas. John was there to see that and to record what took place. And John will have experienced this invisible yet detectable enemy in recent times in his own life, in his exile, in the persecution at the hands of uh, Romans and others. Um, of the people of God. While John may never have seen with his physical eyes Satan, who operates in darkness cloaked like a Klingon ship from view, John knew that though invisible, he was quite detectable. And so now, what does he do? In Revelation chapters 12 and 13, John disables the devil's cloaking device revealing to us exactly who and what the people of Jesus in his day and up to including our own day are up against. And so the next three messages are kind of a little grouping um, from Revelation 12 and 13. Um, who or what are we up against? I mean, can you see him? No, but uh, in Revelation 12 and 13, John will unmask this first adversary for what he is and what he's been up to and what he intends to be up to. And so, here we go, Revelation 12 and 13. And once I'm finished that, when I go on holidays to finish phase two of our move into Tilsonburg, Ray's going to pick up chapter 14. And uh, that's going to be good. So, today's talk is called The Devil is in the Details. And that's more than a play on words or a cute expression. It's absolutely the way it is. Invisible, but detectable in the details. Now, 
let's just uh, review in terms of our understanding what, what Revelation is. I mean, it's first century apocalyptic literature. And as such, it employs vivid imagery uh, and symbolic language to reveal truth to those who are already, at least in the first century, were already, uh, the believers, already prepared, um, who had brought, been brought up, first century Christians and many coming out of, out, of, uh, out of Judaism, who had been brought up on the prophetic imagery of the Old Testament and contemporary writings and the way people talked, discourse. And it is we, not them, actually, who need to be brought up to speed often in order to understand what's going on and then engage with them in the battle of the ages that's already been won. That's good news. We, we sang about it. Already won. Crown them with many crowns. Eternally glorified. All that stuff. True. The battle's been won. But at this point, it's not been surrendered to there's been no surrender by the devil or his allies. And uh, chapter 11 brought us to a climax in the great drama and the narrative of the ages. The, the seals were opened and uh, revealing the broad strokes of what was happening. The Son of God going forth to conquer but meeting the resistance in so many forms. In the, in the seals there, and then that seal that shows the people of God martyred and crying from under the altar, how long, O oh Lord? Uh, is this going to go on until you do something about it? And in response to that praying, chapter 8 opens with um, the prayers of the saints being presented to God and thunder and lightning and all kinds of that sort of phenomena. And then the angels take their trumpets and begin to blow them. And we end up with a series of, of ecological disasters and, uh, and even demonically uh, inspired things. And that was the, you know, uh, if these people hadn't been uh, martyred already, this was the kind of world they were inhabiting in which they were crying out for vindication and, uh, and the beginnings of God's judgment are signaled by the trumpets. Severe ecological and even cosmological disasters and to top it off, demonically inspired terrors. But with the seventh and the last trumpet in Revelation 11, the mystery of God, remember Ray's messages on that? Go and listen to them again, they're masterpieces back from, I don't know, August or whenever it was, or September, um, the mystery of God will be finished. The kingdoms of this world, every square inch, will become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. The end. All right. The end. Lunchtime. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The story has not yet been fully told. You see, there's more that lies back of all that had been written up to that point in those first 11 chapters. And so in chapter 12, John goes back, as it were, to the beginning. Now, not the beginning as in creation. In the beginning, God created the world and so forth. But he goes back to the launch of the beginning of God's new creation. With the old creation and the, the people of God as his starting um, point, 
And now John is about to unmask the enemies who have been arrayed against the Messiah and his people in order to show us their end. And then the end. And so with that, because, hey, all that's great. We got all these trumpets, but we're still going through it. What's going on? I thought Scripture said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, there are some against us, but they won't be against us with the kind of success that they're looking for. And, and so with that, kind of back to the beginning. Not the beginning, beginning, but the beginning of the new creation as it occurred in the coming of Jesus. So there, the, then a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Um, so, um, literal? You know, is, that, is that literal language? A woman with stars and everything? And uh, No, not, not literal language, symbolic. Uh, but what do we have here? What do we have here? The text is going to tell us in a minute. Oops, didn't get the dragon. The text in a, is, is, is going to tell us in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a next breath the identity of the dragon. That's going to be made clear. But what about the woman? Any clues here? Uh, any clues? Take a look at it. A woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, a crown of 12 stars on her head. Uh, you know, any clues there? How, how about the 12 stars? What, what about that? Could that be pointing to the prototype people of God? 12 tribes of Israel. Remember, when Joseph had his dream, there was uh, the sun and the moon and stars, and they were all bowing down to Joseph, and that sort of ticked everybody off. Uh, but that kind of imagery uh, was there, pointing to that um, beginning point of the 12 tribes of Israel through the sons of um, Jacob. And, uh, you know, had a, a bit of a, of a rough start, no doubt, but it got off the ground. And uh, so, it, you know, so I'm, I'm pretty sure we're talking about a symbolic representation of Israel. And uh, it would appear that uh, Israel is pregnant. Pregnant, you know. Pregnant with what? Possibilities and hope that all she's gone through will not have been in vain. Uh, ended by the beastly empires. My language is deliberate. As we get to chapter 13, beastly empires that have all but swallowed her up. But look, she, she's pregnant um, because it says she was expecting a child. Uh, and she cried out in pain in the agony of giving birth. Well, what's going on here? Uh, who's the child? Was this pregnancy expected? <laughs> or was this an accident that uh, is about to be aborted? Um, why pain? Why is she crying out in pain apart from the customary pain of childbirth that I know absolutely nothing about? Um, full disclosure here, and uh, I'm not going to say any more about it because I know nothing about it. But that's what the text says. Cried out in pain, the agony of giving birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, a great fiery red dragon 
with seven heads and ten horns. On its heads were seven coronets or crowns. And its tail swept a third of the stars uh, out of heaven and threw them down to the earth. Now, now, clearly, this is no dragon that can be trained. What was the name of that movie? Train Your Dragon or Pete's Dragon or something like that. Uh, I didn't see the movie. I have no comment on the movie. Uh, and maybe, maybe I'm dreaming about this. There was a movie about training the dragon, right? Oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, even though my age is advancing, my memory at least still works to some degree. But, but this, is, this is not a trainable dragon. This is clearly a dragon... Um, and we already know this dragon to be a symbolic representation of the devil. This is a dragon whose desire is to dominate. That's right out front. He desires to dominate. Um, see, the, the devil has always sought supreme authority that belongs only to God. And, and here he's pictured uh, with crowns on seven heads pointing perhaps to a claim of universal lordship, seven being a number that often conveys the idea of perfection or completion, that kind of thing. And do we have then here a claim of universal dominion? <laughs> Remember what he said to Jesus in the temptation, just, you know, uh, worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, they're mine to give. He said, um, little bit of a problem with his viewpoint seeing as the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness but you know a minor detail won't worry about that hey worship me and I, I got it all to give you you think Jesus would have got one square inch had he worshiped I think he would have just been kicked to the <laughs> son of God yeah right yeah go make some uh, stones into bread because you're, you're useless useless at any rate there he is claiming universal sovereignty and lordship. And at this point, it seems he's convinced or coerced a third of the angelic host, uh, sometimes in Scripture even designated as small g gods in their own right to fall in with him. Now there are times when such language of uh, the stars, again, points to the people of God. I won't bore you with the details of that. But um, one of the things that, that some of the rabbis at one point determined as they were looking at texts uh, in the Old Testament that connect with this is that any attack on the God, God's people is an attack against us. But it does seem here that we're talking about a third of the angelic host, sometimes designated as God's. Uh, in, in various places of Scripture. Ray quoted uh, Psalm 82 a number of weeks ago in that sermon. I, I just watched that one, Ray, because I wanted to save it until I was leading up into this. So I held off. Plus, I have no Wi-Fi at the trailer. So uh, that was the other reason. So, um, you know, what we have uh, with him, with Satan, these, uh, these have managed, these... This, third of the angelic host, they've managed to usurp invisible yet detectable power and authority over nations after the entrance of sin from Adam to the present. But you know, Satan, you know, I got a third. That, that's pretty good, right? That's pretty good. I'll just take my, take my third and run. I remember one guy on the, the uh, 
who wants to be a millionaire? And, uh, you know, you got to a point where you've got 32 grand locked in. And he got his half million. He got up to that and said, do you want to go for the last one? Because, you know, if you get that wrong, all you're going to get is 32 grand. And he went for the last one. And he got that one wrong. Down to 32. Man, wouldn't that just, you know, make you, make you go nuts? Hey, you got 32 grand you didn't have, right? Well, the devil's never going to be satisfied with a third. Uh, interestingly enough, which, you know, I read a book in Miami Airport a few years ago called How Democracies Die, and it was a study of uh, democracies, uh, some of them failing or failed, in which uh, a third, roughly in every case, every country, um, easily fell for um, uh, an authoritarian that came along and uh, basically ended up dismantling the democracy that uh, was at least developing. Uh, but, but you know, a third, here it is. Uh, and, and not good enough, not good enough. His is more, and, and his is not just a desire to dominate. It's more than that. It's a ravenous and insatiable determination to devour, right? Uh, what do we read? The dragon stood opposite the woman who was about to give birth so that he could devour her child when it was born. He's, he's been waiting and watching for an opportunity to complete the grand slam, you know. Uh, and with this woman, pregnant by design, with the hope of God's people, uh, about to be birthed, the dragon sees and seizes the opportunity for pitifully easy prey. Now, you know, I, I, I used to really be interested in chess, but I never got good at it, so I'm not interested in it anymore. But I, I remember playing through a game between Bobby Fischer, the uh, young, uh, brash American who was playing the uh, uh, grandmaster champion of the world, Boris Spassky. And one of the games, Fisher, I forget around, maybe the 20th move or something, sacrificed his queen. He put his queen in danger. And Spassky went for it. And in maybe 10 moves, it was over. Not for Fisher, for Spassky. You see, I mean, you, you got to understand, you know, if, if somebody is willing to sacrifice their queen, in a chess game, uh, you got to know there's a trap, right? But desire to dominate and determination to absolutely devour such easy prey has been irresistibly uh, difficult temptation to not go for, for far lesser minds, like Spassky in comparison with Old Devilish. But, you know, here, here's the story. If God is weak and foolish enough to bring his son into the world in the manner symbolically portrayed here and literally narrated in two of our Gospels, you would think maybe the dragon would uh, take a time out before pouncing. But, no. He stood opposite the woman so he could devour her child when it was born. She gave birth, all right, to a male child 
who is going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And the child was snatched away to God and to his throne. <laughs> what is going on here? Well, clearly, we're in the symbolic, uh, symbolically in the narrative territory of Christmas. And this is where June gets really happy. Myth of Christmas. Where are you, June? Um, you love this stuff. Christmas in September. I don't know if we had it in July, but we're having it in September. Just if, if only for a brief moment, because what, what we have here uh, is that the story of Jesus is compressed into a cut-to-the-chase claim about the child's identity. And, and two questions arise then uh, here, uh, the first of which is exactly how did this dragon attempt to achieve ultimate universal domination by devouring this child? Well, all you got to do is go to, go to Matthew 2. And uh, you see Herod, you know the story. And uh, he, he saw he'd been tricked by the Magi who in a dream were warned and told to go home another way. Don't go back to Herod and give, a, give up sensitive intelligence here. And when Herod realized it, he flew into a towering rage. He dispatched people to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and all in its surrounding districts from two years old and under, according to the time the Magi had told him. You see, the, the dragon remained cloaked like a Klingon ship initiating attack sequence. And he, but he found a more than willing partner in flesh and blood who liked him, who like him, desired domination and was determined to devour even the hint of a threat to his reign. And he was old and he was getting sicker and sicker and crazier and crazier, which made it all the more, um, you know, uh, a threatening thing. But later, you know, I mean, that's how he used Herod. Uh, and uh, later, that same dragon would employ the same strategy in, in inciting and uh, in infiltrating Judas. Uh, and, and again, the temptation was too irresistible and the rage too blind to see the sacrifice, or the beginnings of it, the God coming in the flesh in, a ba in the form of a baby. So easy to pick off. So easy. But the, the rage and the, and the temptation, uh, just, you know, irresistible. The rage was too blind to see the sacrifice for what it would mean to his domination. Which is exactly what John intends by this conflation of the birth, life, teaching, miracles, death, resurrection, and ascension of this male child. And you know his name. I don't have to tell you, do I? Do I have to spell it out? What's the right answer in Sunday school? Always and ever, Jesus. Now the second question to arise here is exactly how was this dragon's attempt to achieve ultimate universal domination by devouring this child thwarted? And to answer this, we go to the source of the illusion here. Uh, this bit about ruling all nations with a, a rod of iron, have you ever read that anywhere else? As in Psalm, what number? Psalm 1, uh, blessed are the, you know, no, not Psalm 1. Well, is it number 2? Yes, it's number 2. We didn't have to look too far 
So, so there it is. Let's look at the psalm. Why do the nations conspire? The peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. At that point, referring to the anointed Davidic king, initially David, then Solomon and others. But they say, you know, we, we don't want them. Let us their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. Now remember that, that the nations have over them these fallen gods swept into the, dev the dragon's sway. And they'll do anything to assert their authority and delegitimize gods and God's anointed. Here the Davidic king. And, and this has both immediate and long-range prophetic ramifications for their desire to dominate and devour all that is of God. Uh, but he who sits in the heaven laughs. Huh. Really? Really? The Lord has them in derision. And then he speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury, saying, look, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. As I say, at the time of writing, the king was David and soon to be his descendants. When David received the promise of a never-ending dynasty, uh, God said of the one who would be his son Solomon, um, you know, um, I will be a father to him and he will be my son. And, and so this father-son language uh, applied directly and particularly to kingship. Very interesting when you get to thinking about what the term son of God means when it comes to Jesus. But this one would be, and it goes on to say, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Uh, and ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage or your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. David's sons are simply to ask God for the nations as their inheritance as they remain faithful to their kingly calling, which so many of them did not. In terms of long-range ramifications here, Paul quotes the first part of this slide, the unhighlighted section. Uh, I should have highlighted it, but then the whole thing would be highlighted. If everything's important, nothing is, uh, so said uh, some business writer, uh, forget his name. But, but, but in the, the unhighlighted section here, Paul takes this in, uh, quotes the first part of, the, of this in Acts 13 and connects it prophetically with the resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Jesus, speaking um, uh, to, a, uh, to a synagogue situation. We bring you the good news that what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it also is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Today I've raised you to life and I've, I've brought you um, to heaven through the ascension. I have sat you at my right hand. And Peter makes mention of that when he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Peter and Paul kind of bring those, both those um, psalms together, number 2 and number 110, to make the case 
that God's royal son inherits the nations. God's royal son, and not the dragon or his allies, visible and invisible. They're, 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 they're the ones brought into subjection, ultimately and completely. Their power will be broken. And God's faithfulness and faithful would be vindicated. And this royal psalm ends with warning and encouragement. Now therefore, kings, be wise and be warned, rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Kiss his feet. Or some translations, kiss the sun, or he will be angry. And you will perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Happy are all who take refuge in him. So you have this, this warning but encouragement, something that the people of God, that John writes to, needed, and so do we, facing the invisible enemies and detecting the, the activity of Satan in our own spheres of, of uh, involvement and influence. And so we need this. So there it is, conflated but compelling. And by the way, although we're talking a lot about the devil here, this is the centerpiece of this passage and really of my sermon. We want to give the devil his due, all right, and his due is the lake of fire prepared for him and his buddies. That's the devil's due. We want to see the devil get his due. But we want to honor Jesus and, uh, you know, and not, not um, obsess over much, like Lewis said, with the devils and the ultimate devil. So there it is. There it is. The woman, meanwhile, fled into the desert where a place had been prepared for her by God so that she could be looked after for 1,260 days. Now Israel, though dispersed and disinherited in terms of their land and temple, isn't it something how Israel been kept by God during the entire time of what, again, Ray masterfully described as the time of testimony in his message on chapter 11. Revisit that for uh, the meaning of this time designation here of 1260 days. But what about the dragon? What about him? I know I'm rushing over some of this because I can't deal with it all, uh, or, or you'll be sitting here masked for far too long. And I'll run out of gas and fall over. So, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fighting back. But they could not win. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So the great dragon was thrown down to the earth. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and the Satan who deceives the whole world. His angels were thrown down with him. And uh, I'm going to do an entire message on this and the following uh, few verses uh, in two weeks' time. So I'm just going to hold my, hold my fire on that to save a bit of time here and, uh, and to uh, kind of bring thing around uh, to a conclusion today. But there's, there are powerful words here. Now at last has come salvation and power, the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Messiah, the accuser of our family, our brethren, has been thrown down. The one who accuses them before God day and night, they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony because they did not love their lives unto death. So in a few weeks, we'll dig into that. But here it says, So rejoice, you heavens, and all who live there. 
But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing he has only a short time. Yeah, rejoice, all right. Because salvation has come. The kingdom of God announced in Jesus' preaching and brought into play in his death and resurrection and now ascension and reign. I mean, it's come. And the, the power of Messiah has overcome the devouring domination of the devil and his followers now are joining in and are overcoming the devil just as he did. Just as he did. But you know, this guy, his rage will know no bounds other than that, that placed on it by God. We still read of the devil as a roaring lion seeking easy prey. Are you easy, for, easy prey? Don't be easy prey. Don't be easy prey. Easy prey are people that get all bitter and angry and hold grudges and do not bear with one another and do not do all the things that, that those love messages of the last number of weeks enjoined upon us. Don't be easy prey. Don't be Dr. Ballard's lion food made especially for old ancient dragons. He's, he's still seeking prey, but the faithful, conquering overcomers, they're not easy prey. They will nonetheless feel the heat and smell the stench of his breath in pursuit of them. So you see, although uh, defiant, he's defeated. He's defeated. But he's defiant to the end, and he will not stop until he is stopped once and for all. You know, Martin Luther must have been feeling the heat and smelling the stench when he wrote, A mighty fortress is our God. Uh, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. So did we in our own strength confide our striving with losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Um, and goes on to say, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. Why? For lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. One little word. They overcame him by the word of their testimony and by the blood of their lamb and their willingness. At, like Jesus. Not to engage in the violent ways of the world, but even to be sacrificed. Even to be of those who now would cry from under the altar, how long, O oh Lord? But they overcame him. That's a, quite a great hymn, isn't it? Woe, because the devil has come down. He's mad. He's mad. When the dragon's side had been cast down, he set off in pursuit of the woman who had borne the baby. The woman, however, was given a pair of wings from a great eagle so she could fly away from the presence of the serpent into the desert to a place where she's looked after 
for a time, two times, and half a time, equivalent time frame to the previous one mentioned, the 1260 days, or 42 months, symbolic time frame, I believe. But what's he doing? He's devising his strategy now that he's been thrown down. And I will say this, that I believe that his casting down was at the moment of the glorification of the Son of God. Now is the time of judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be thrown down. And I, if I am lifted up, will draw all kinds of people to me. See, there's, there's a connection, I believe, to what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. But he's devising his strategy. He, he does everything he can to destroy Israel. He has always. You know, think of all the times that the original people of God came under threat, sometimes even from Christians and sometimes even from the writings of Christians. Sadly, that the Nazis took that had been written by Martin Luther. Uh, but that's another story. And he does everything he can to destroy Israel, many of whom have not recognized their Messiah, but many have. His strategy, well, pursue. Attempt to overtake, overwhelm with deadly force. Spat out of his mouth a jet of water like a river after the woman to carry her off with the force of the water, and so on. Not literal language, but evoking images of pursuit and seeking to overwhelm with deadly force. And when that didn't work, and never has. It says, then the dragon was angry with the woman. Sure. And went off to wage war against the rest of her children. Who are they? Those who keep God's commands and the testimony of Jesus. Strategy. Pursue. Seek to overwhelm with deadly force. Persecute. And the last image from this chapter is he stood on the sand beside the sea. What's he doing there? What's he standing like? Is, is it break time? I think I want to go to the beach, you know, take a look at the waves, maybe jump in, splash around. Not a good idea if you're the devil. You, you want heat, right? But, you know, now what's happening is that part of his strategy is to delegate his authority, enlist willing partners that will be more than willing and at his disposal. And so he stands there by the sands of the sea, and then I saw a monster, usually translated beast, coming up out of the sea, ten horns, seven heads, wearing cornets, blasphemous names written on the heads. The beast I saw was like a leopard with bear's feet and a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave this monster, this beast, its power and its throne and great authority. Now, more on this monstrosity next week. Otherwise known not as a monster as per Tom Wright's translation, but as the beast. Met him in chapter 11. First time he was introduced. Ray pointed that out because I just listened to your sermon, Ray, you know, earlier this week. So I know that. Who or what, or who and what is he? And who and what is his sidekick? There's a second 
beast that emerges here too. What is their strategy and their desired outcome, and will it work? Because if it does, dum dum da dum dum da dum 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 dum. But that's not the song we're going to hear. We're going to be hearing "Worthy is the Lamb." So there it is. The devil is in the details, desiring to dominate, determined to devour. Defeated yet defiant to the end, devising strategy, delegating authority. Certainly given more time than I would like to the devil today. Like I said, we desire to give him his due, and he will receive his due. But as I said a few moments ago, the real centerpiece of this chapter is the male child who will rule ultimately. And so one last look at the real takeaway here. The male child who is going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron and the child who snatched away to God and to his throne where he now reigns. I will tell the decree of the Lord, you are my son today. I've begotten you. And it's him that inherits the nations. He, God's royal son, and not the dragon and his allies, visible and invisible. They're the ones brought into subjection. Their power broken. God's faithful are vindicated. And uh, with the warning and the, the encouragement, I love the last words. Don't you? It's a good place to end. You should leave church sort of happy. You know, if not ecstatically so, at least sort of happy. Well, let me give you some reason for happy. Happy are all who take refuge in the royal Son of God. And not just the Davidic human line, but the ultimate supreme son. We're told in Acts 2, at his resurrection and ascension, he's reigning. He is fulfilling the Davidic promise right now. His enemies are being put under his feet. And John, John's people and John himself needed that encouragement, as do we. So, my last word today is, don't worry. Be happy for the best reasons of all. And may God bless us in that. Thanks for listening. We invite you to follow Jesus with us and join us on mission with him. We'd love for you to connect with us through our website, worship at aemc.com, or on Facebook. Just search for Aylmer EMC. 